Have you ever wondered what would it be like to be an SLP in the NICU? How do you find a job? What if you're interested in being in the NICU, but where can you start to gain knowledge and experience? How do you write a goal for a baby in the NICU? Well, I am so excited today to introduce you all to Amber and Victoria. They're NICU-based SLPs in Kentucky, and they are here to answer the top 10 questions asked about being an SLP in the NICU. Welcome to the Feeding Pod. I'm Bree, your co-host. I'm a speech-language pathologist and certified lactation counselor. And I'm Olivia, your other co-host, a registered dietitian nutritionist. We are here to bring multidisciplinary evidence-based information that is easily accessible about pediatric feeding and swallowing disorders. We understand firsthand the importance of collaboration and how difficult it can be to navigate the ever-changing research on assessment and treatment of pediatric feeding and swallowing disorders. The Feeding Pod is here to provide research, support, and a dash of comic relief. Now, let's dive right in. Disclaimer, all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. This is intended to be educational in nature and does not replace the consultation, diagnosis, and or medical treatment from a qualified healthcare provider. Welcome back to the Feeding Pod. This is Bree, and today I am accompanied by Amber and Victoria that are going to go through frequently asked questions regarding being an SLP in the NICU. So I'm going to pass it over to y'all and kind of give a quick introduction of yourselves. Hi, I'm Victoria Osborne. I'm one of the feeding therapists in the NICU here, and I am about four and a half years out of school. So I had kind of an interesting start to my uh, NICU journey. I, I worked my CF in a variety of settings. I was hired on with a company that it was a private practice that um, served a lot of different settings. So I got experience in the pediatric outpatient clinic there, a medically fragile daycare, as well as first steps and home health. And um, right after I had secured that job as a CF, I actually got the opportunity to apply for a PRM position at my local hospital that I had done my clinical rotation at. And I went in thinking I was going to be interviewing for an adult position and actually got asked to come on and help build the feeding team in the NICU with Amber. So I accepted that and really got my foot in the door in the NICU there part-time first and then transitioned to full-time. So now I'd say about 80% plus of my caseload is working in the NICU and also doing pediatrics and then um, still learning from Amber, but loving it. I completed my schooling um, under the Department of Education or the Department of Special Education, which was under the College of Education, which was interesting to my NICU start. So I really didn't get a lot of experience at first, but um, still growing from there. And so I'll let Amber introduce herself because I feel like she's a huge part of my journey. (laughs) (laughs) Well, my name is Amber Valentine. Um, I have been a speech pathologist for about 15 years, so 16 now, I forgot what year it is. And I started out in a similar situation like Victoria. I did an acute care facility, but also had outpatient pediatric feeding and first steps and LTAC and home health. And so I kind of started out with 
you know, hands in all the pots. And then I transferred to the hospital I'm at currently. Um, and at the time there was only one therapist who was servicing NICU and peds at all. And that ended up being me for a long time. Um, and outgrew the facility for what we were at the time. So I actually moved to Florida and worked at a level four NICU and outpatient pediatric feeding center. Um, and then a second NICU that was a neonatal abstinence NICU specifically just for that population. Um, only lasted about a year in Florida and came back to Lexington and we switched directors um, in the NICU actually and in our department and we started growing the NICU feeding program here at the hospital. Um, so about that time is actually when Victoria was my student and she did some in the NICU but mostly adults at that time and then it kind of we started the program growing and growing and started infant driven feeding and several different things and our boss kept wanting us to get a second person helping me and I was like no because <laughs> I specifically wanted somebody and she wasn't ready to commit yet <laughs> it, it took me a little bit to make sure that I felt confident and secure in moving full-time inpatient acute setting so yeah it turned out to be a magical pair though <laughs> <laughs> so since then we have gone from a caseload of four or five babies that we consistently kept to last week we had 28 wow. or 32 something yeah, we've something been crazy. hanging in the 20s and 30s now wow. <clears throat> pretty consistently between NICU and mother babies so yeah I was gonna say just as like a little disclaimer we do like we're in the NICU full-time but we also grew a program on our mother baby floor so we do go down and we see several babies a week down on the floor who are having short stays two, three days, sometimes five. Um, so some of our experience is also pulling from that aspect as well. Not just NICU, but mostly, mostly NICU. Yeah. And then we see outpatient pediatric feeding, both of us do, um, and then pediatric monofibrillium swallows in an outpatient setting also. So Awesome. Well, we are so excited to have y'all here and listen to just, you know, all of your experiences and just helping people better understand like what the role is as an SLP in the NICU, but also with, like you said, some of those kiddos that, um, you know, just the, the neonatal unit, the newborns and um, that might be having trouble with, with feeding and swallowing. So um, I'm going to kind of just go through some of these questions. We kind of have like these top 10 questions that are frequently asked. And so uh, we'll just dive right in. So kind of first and foremost, like what is the SLP's role in the NICU? <laughs> to take on that one. <laughs> well, so interestingly enough about our NICU, like I said, we've grown a lot in the last probably three years um, or four. I don't know. Mm -hmm. It's a bit. Um, so right now, our primary role in our in our NICU, which we're in a level three NICU, so we see 27 weekers and above. We don't do ECMO um, or anything like that, but um, our role primarily is feeding right now, so that's what we're doing. Um, we went from a specific skill set of babies that we had we had generated, you know, um, 32 weekers, 1500 grams, specific syndromes, cleft lip and palate, neonatal abstinence, whatever. We designed the skill set to then branching from there to the infant driven feeding program. And so that's kind of carried on to this bigger program that we've developed along with moms who are having breastfeeding difficulties in the NICU. That seems to be more comfortable for us than it is for lactation in our hospital. They just feel more comfortable with full-term babies than with preemies, which is great for us. Um, but our physical therapist is actually working on the SENSE program being implemented in our NICU, and so we are rolling that out soon. Um, so we're going to be doing more environment of care and helping her 
with the SENSE program and we've like elected nurse ambassadors to help us develop that program so that we can do more than just feeding here in our NICU. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and just kind of spitballing off of that. Yeah, our, our main thing right now here is helping these babies learn how to eat, but learn how to eat safely and effectively to support their nourishment outside of the NICU. And also at the same time, develop these positive neuropathways in their brain while they're doing it that supports their overall development. So while feeding is our main um, goal up here is right now for what we're doing, we're we're in involved in all of the care in the NICU. We're there to kind of help support appropriate neuroprotective practices, get families comfortable with implementing neuroprotective feeding strategies um, and techniques, helping nursing staff get more comfortable with that, being involved in the before and after feeding. So like during NICU care times, we'll, a lot of times we'll do two people care where we're there maybe ready, getting ready to evaluate or um, help with a feeding, but we'll be there from the beginning, helping with the diaper change, helping with some of the little things that go into making, you know, the entire session successful. So I know that there are therapists and other NICUs who are kind of maybe have develop their program a little bit further to where they're not just so much focused on feeding. Um, We're still maybe not quite there, but we do lots of things. I mean, like she said, anything from breastfeeding support, counseling with parents sometimes. um, Discharge education. Discharge education is huge. Um, Plan of care for after discharge. I think that's the biggest thing is, you know, with us seeing babies in the NICU, we also follow them as an outpatient oftentimes, especially if they're local. I think too, our, um, before we grew our feeding program to what it is now, we were still seeing a lot of adults too. And now our presence is up here in the NICU so much where the nurses know where they can find us. So, (laughs) yes. So we have a little room in the NICU that they can come ask us about pretty much anything feeding related or just, you know, if they want a second set of hands to help with something. So I think that our role is growing in the NICU. I think that um, there's even more to be done as far as building positive feeding experiences from the very beginning, even when maybe a baby isn't feeding yet. There's interventions that the SLP can do. We can go in and we can help get ready to transition to oral feedings. So um, lots of things, but again, it's sometimes you just have to start and the first place that you can maybe do that is just with feeding and helping just get more towards the infant driven feeding, the neuroprotective feeding. So that's where we started at least. No, I think that's super interesting because, you know, we, we hear about the other sides of the NICU and of course we know within our scope there are other things that we can do, like the counseling, advocacy, education, and things like that. But sometimes if a program getting started for the first time, you have to focus on that first part before you can Mm. do all those other things. And of course, some of them are happening simultaneously, but um, I think it's just awesome what you all have done in such a short amount of time, honestly, like three years is really not that much time at all. It's not. And then we find that, so we joined our NICU practice team and then 
the physical therapist is getting ready to roll out what Amber was referring to, the SENSE program, mm -hmm. which is all about positive sensory experiences. And while that's not our, you know, bread and butter here, we definitely care about that. And that's such a huge role and does impact feeding. They felt comfortable then asking us to join that team and become administrators. So because we know proper development and we are experts in neuroprotective care, mm -hmm. we now are able to help roll out other things that are going to also enhance feeding experiences. So that's been super interesting. We're ready to kind of take another step and broadening our skills and learning more about that. Um, so that's coming up. And then another thing, especially where Amber had, she had worked in an NAS, um, neonatal abstinence yeah. syndrome unit. Um, there has been some talk of program development towards that in our NICU and helping educate cuddlers, volunteers, people who maybe are going to be involved with NAS on like the social and communication development of that infant. So I think that's a big piece that's not talked about a lot in the NICU. I know that, you know, feeding is our thing, but also there is still a role for, you know, communication and language and social development in the NICU, especially for some of these babies that are going to be here long term and yeah. maybe don't have frequent visitors or don't have a lot of interaction time. So that's another exciting thing that we're like hoping to look for in the future, but starting small right now. Yeah, that's so exciting though. I'm, I'm really excited for you guys. So going into the next question, you know, so now we know what the SLP role kind of is in the NICU. What would you, how would you describe sort of your typical day? Of course, there's no typical, but mm. kind of going through what's a, what's a normal day look like for you in the NICU? It's so funny you say that every day at the end of the day, we go, today was just, today was just crazy, wasn't it? Or today was weird. And we're like, wait a second. We say that every day. So yep, yep. it's really probably not that crazy anymore. Um, so yeah, I'll just start out. When I come in at the very beginning of the day, our SLP office is actually not in the NICU. So we always go and we check in first in just our departmental office. We go in and we print out our schedule for the day. Our manager assigns us patients like early in the morning before we're ever even here, goes ahead and sign, assigns us all patients. So every day we might have a different set of patients than we did before. So we go to our SLP department office over there and we um, get our, our schedules for the day and we go ahead and start looking up kind of what babies we have, what patients we have planning out our days from the very beginning. Because what's a little bit tricky about NICU and mother baby even is that um, you have to, especially if you're trying to evaluate feeding, you have to catch that baby exactly when they're going to be eating. So in the NICU, that kind of runs on care times. So we'll immediately come in and we'll look to see how many babies we have, what different care times they're going to be eating at. Um, and then we'll kind of plan from there and go ahead and immediately come over to the NICU for where we can start talking to nurses, calling nurses, figuring out when would be a good time for us to come and get, you know, hands-on with these babies. So going back to the infant-driven feeding, that's not always going to be exactly what you have planned in the beginning of the day, because sometimes you plan on going to see a baby at a certain care time, and maybe they're not appropriate to eat. They're not queuing, or they're outside of safe parameters to try to eat. So it's 
got to be really flexible, but we'll come over to the NICU and make sure that everybody knows we're here, you know, come to our little room, open the door, turn the lights on, let everybody know we're going to be here for the day. But we do try to get here early before the first care time. So that way we can help out nurses from the very beginning, help parents out and go ahead and start seeing babies. So what, um, what time is typically like the first, when you say first care time and like when you're kind of getting there in the morning, what is that? Sure. It's so we get here at 7:30 in the morning. The first hands-on care time where nurses are beginning to make their assessments is 8 a.m. That's also right now with COVID. That's like the time when parents are allowed to enter the NICU. So the first like touch time is 8 a.m. And then care times in the NICU here for most babies are every three hours. So we have babies that are on schedules 8, 11, 2, 5, and then we have babies 9, 12, 3, 6. Um, nurses, we used to have a care time that was 10, 1, 4, 7, but it landed right in the middle of shift change for nursing. So nurses get here at 7, they get reports, and then they have to be ready to assess their babies by 8 a.m. So we like to get our schedules in the morning. We get here at 7.30. We print our schedules. We spend a little bit of time checking emails. Not really a lot. We're over here probably by 7.50 every morning. So we're rolling. Um, We want to make sure we get up here in enough time that we can plan and give our nurses a heads up if we have a new baby on our caseload that we don't know about or, um, you know, parents are going to be here and we want to help them bright and early. So I think That's like a huge thing, making sure that our presence is known in the morning and then going ahead and getting hands on with babies. So when I say that, that could be a first time feeding evaluation with the bottle or breast, depending on, um, you know, what that mom's goals are, or it could be a baby that we've been seeing several times now um, and just making sure that everybody's on the same page with their feeding plan, making sure that they're still tolerating all the strategies and recommendations that are in place. Um, And then in between those care times, so let's say I saw a baby at 9 a.m. And I kind of finished up in that room around 9.30 or 9.40. I would maybe go chart for a little while, but then have a break until the next care time at 11 a.m. So with those gaps, what we do is we go see either a baby down on mother baby floor, if we have one down there, or we go and every once in a while have to see an adult. So I think that's another question that we'll address later, but we might have to see an adult in that little gap of time, or those are the times when we, um, we plan our outpatient appointments. So we don't have full days of um, our outpatient clinic. We just have like two blocks of time where we can see an outpatient as needed. So it's kind of can be a pretty like busy day just because sometimes we're just we're constantly on the go. However, I will say one of us is always available in the NICU at all times. That has been the biggest blessing about having two therapists up here. So if I'm running down to do something on mother baby, you know, the odds are Amber's up here or vice versa. If I'm having to go run and do an adult, one of us are always available. And then the nurses always have our number. So you know, that's really how our day is structured. We try to hit those care times and then we're available for anything additional in between care times, or we're trying to see other babies that don't have as strict of a schedule. Anything else about our day in particular that you can Uh, think of? 
I guess the only other question I had was about how much you kind of answered this, but on average, how much time are you spending with the infant and, and parents during these, these times? These kids? Yeah. So, so when I go into a room, we always like to go a little bit early. So if the baby's care time is at 9am, you'll find me over hanging around the pod or the room or talking to the nurse and getting in there before that, because again, we want to be an asset to that nurse and participate in the care before the feed, because how that baby's care goes in can impact the way that they're going to feed. Mm -hmm. So I might get to a room even 10, 15 minutes before the time to eat and just start to assess immediately is baby waking up or, you know, is baby starting to alert more as we do care, provide some positive touch, slowly set my like intentions and get in a good headspace before the feed. So I definitely get in there a little bit early. And then in our NICU, we have 30 minute windows of time that that's like the cutoff for feeding. So we don't, we don't feed babies longer than 30 minutes. However, there are babies that definitely feed for way less than that. So they might only tolerate five minutes of feeding before they tell us it's too much. So we could be in there from anywhere from like 15 minutes all the way sometimes up until like 45 minutes to an hour. If a parent is in there, we've completed the feeding that maybe took the entire 30 minutes and then parents have several questions or we need to review strategies and go over things. I have been in a room for up to 45 minutes to an hour at times. It just depends. However, actually feeding the baby, that's usually, you know, anywhere from zero to 30 minutes. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so going off of where you said, sometimes you have to see an adult during the day. So I guess, you know, does, how frequently does that happen? Maybe when would this be something that would occur? Um, yeah. So about seeing adults. In the beginning, whenever myself, Victoria was part-time and well, technically, I guess I was PRN, but it was part-time hours. Mm -hmm. Um, I was seeing probably, I would say 50% infants, pediatrics, 50% adults. Now that Amber and I have grown our caseload so much in the NICU, on a day-to-day -day basis, we probably see one to two adults a day. And those are typically not going to be very involved patients. So we might be assigned a treatment that, or maybe even something that's more of like a follow-up than we would a brand new eval. Um, something that they know we can kind of take care of in those gaps of times that we have. So like today, I think I came in and I had one adult dysphagia treatment. And um, there will be days though where we have no adults. I think we went about two or three weeks where our babies were so busy. We were, we didn't see any adults in that, um, in those weeks. So it just depends on how the adult caseload is kind of running because unfortunately there is still productivity standards. So 
we still run on, we have to be 80% productive throughout our day. Not all NICUs are structured this way. There are some therapists who have been able to get to the point where they don't have those same standards as you maybe would if you were just serving adults. We still have those. So there are times that, you know, if there's a lull in what we're doing up in the NICU or our caseload's really low, we'll go pick up an adult or two, help out the adult side. Again, I we both are you know, skilled and competent in all things adults from instrumentals to dysphagia, um, speech language cognition, we can do all of it. We're signed off, we're competent in all of it. Amber has her board certified in swallowing and, you know, that's an adult certification. Mm-hmm. But it's kind of few and far between now that we've grown our caseload. And that's, that's kind of the expectation that a lot of NICUs have when you're getting your SLP presence in the NICU. They want somebody that's there that they can go to and be available. So it's really not ideal to have to split your time up and go do adults and then run back and forth and do pediatrics. Um, however, I will say I I enjoy seeing an adult every once yeah. in a while. Changing it up sometimes, like <laughs> changing it up and like just keeping my skill set. You know, I Absolutely. I'm super passionate about the NICU, but I enjoy seeing an adult. I enjoy doing an instrumental on an adult every once in a while. So, I mean, I know that some people think you can only like one thing, but not the case. No, I, I totally agree. In grad school, when I had my adult placements, like I did not not like it. Like I enjoyed it and it was fun. Do I prefer peds? Sure. Um, Absolutely. I enjoyed the adults as well. <laughs> I also think it has really just given us a new perspective on the infant feeding because now we're seeing dysphagia and swallowing across the lifespan. So there will be a day where sometimes I just evaluated a 32 weeker at the breast. And then maybe in that gap of time, I had to go see a 98 year old. And I'm like, it has, it just broadens your perspective to be able to like connect those pieces on what happens here at birth all the way up and follows you throughout the lifespan. So I think it's actually made me a more well-rounded clinician and it has enhanced my practice. I will say though that especially in the beginning when you're trying to program develop in the NICU, you it, it is desired that you are available and you are there to answer questions, build relationships and like, like make, make your presence known in the NICU. So yeah. um, yeah. now that you're back, the question we already did like kind of our day-to-day mm-hmm. what's a day look like up here and then like how often do we have to go see adults and stuff like that do you think that we hit that one I think so I think I can okay. go to the next one yeah okay um so moving on to the next one so now we're talking about okay like you kind of expect that you even if you're going into this NICU position you need to be you know, readily available to, to see some adults. So if someone is interested in pursuing a NICU position, what are your top three pieces of advice for them? Um, I think exposure to the NICU. And I know that sounds like, yeah, right. Okay. For sure. That's what you need. But I think the difference is, and I, and I don't know, you probably see this too. It's not just the NICU, but I think pediatric feeding, it's like every area of speech pathology has what people think is like the holy grail, you know? And so when I did pediatric outpatient, I had a colleague who was a phenomenal speech pathologist. If we had a child with autism, like she would be my go-to, you know, and she thought in her mind to be the best pediatric therapist that she could be, she had to be a feeding therapist. And so what we found out was she didn't like it. 
and you know she had no medical background she was an early interventionist and then was in the schools originally and she had no no medical experience so for her she was like wow feeding is really medical no matter what setting you're in and I was like she was like and I really don't like this and I was like you don't have to like it it's okay to not be a pediatric feeding therapist you know and I think that what we've seen in the NICU is we have a lot of students who come up here and they're like I want to be in the NICU and I'm like and then they get up here and they're like <laughs> like, I don't like this, you know, and mm-hmm. I think they think we're it's baby very different. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I was like, I don't cuddle babies. I don't hold and snuggle babies all day. That's not what I do. I don't even feed them next to me anyway. So I was like, it's not bad. And I think when you get exposure to what it is and like even our adult colleagues who just do adults, I think that they sometimes don't understand the difference. And then when we have students that come with us and then go with it, they're like, wow, there are things that you're going to do that are above and beyond what I did as just an adult therapist, you know, and I mean, not that there's not always going above and beyond as a therapist, but like she, like, I just had to go get flanges for a mom because they weren't the right size flanges. So that was not in my daily routine. That wasn't my patient today, you know, and it's like just all yeah. the little extra things that you do because you're not working with a patient. You're working with this like giant family. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And so I think exposure, I think either a student rotation or lots of observation, I mean, lots too. Like you can't go spend a day and then be like, that's, that's it for me. That's, that's what I want to do. Or that's not what I want to do. Um, so that would be my first piece of advice is. Yeah. And just to add on to that, there is a lot of good days up here and there's a lot of bad days. So if you just happen to observe a good day, it might seem very glamorous. And, but there's a lot of like trials and tribulations in the NICU. And I think that that's the hardest part to kind of like, communicate to people who just think that it would be amazing and like it's their dream to work in the NICU so we recently put out a webinar on kind of like a roadmap to pediatric dysphagia and I called it that in general just because we named it that because pediatric dysphagia comes in a variety of settings I mean even if you think that you are positive you want to work with infants it does not have to be in the NICU you can work and do infant feeding and dysphagia outpatient setting down on a mother baby floor like there's lots of ways that you can still become a pediatric dysphagia therapist without getting into the NICU but again I do think yeah getting kind of some exposure at first I'd say too just being patient like I think that Mm -hmm. because we're our field tends to attract a lot of you know um what is the word that I want to say? We're like, we're all go-getters. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. We, we're very motivated and yeah. we want to, driven like, and, we're, yeah. we're driven yes. and we want to make that happen right away. And like, what can we do right now to get into a NICU as a CF? And like, yeah, I just think I happen to have a very lucky story and I recognize that. That's why I'm staying thankful, (laughs) but that's not going to be the journey for everybody. And I think that it can be disheartening if you think, well, there's no NICU jobs available or they don't want to see us or, you know, I think being patient and starting to build your groundwork in whatever setting you do get into, even if it's in a school or even if it's in a nursing home to start out, you know, start just refining your skill set as a clinician because being a NICU NICU therapist is much more than just being able to identify signs and symptoms of distress with feeding or like you still need all of these pieces of the puzzle to come together so 
get some medical experience though. Like that's Mm going to help a lot, but be patient in that. If it's, it might take you several years to get Mm -hmm. actually your foot in the door in the NICU. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think being flexible, I think that goes along with being patient, but being flexible. This is a fortress of solitude, no matter what NICU I've worked in. It is, we are the odd men out. And I think getting in and establishing a rapport you know, I've worked at this facility that I work at for a long time. So I know the nurses no matter where I go in the hospital. And it's so much easier. I don't it's not easier to be an adult therapist. That's not what I mean. It's just so much easier to have a buy-in from that side because we have in our practice here at this facility, we have so much more respect on that side already. That was built. Like we didn't have to worry about that anymore. But you really have to work on your rapport when you're working in this type of, you know, it's like if you did palliative care all day, you have to have a certain finesse and flexibility to do that. And so I think learning when to give and take and learning when to establish the right relationships and how to read people better, it's something that I never thought I would be doing, you know, like I did before when I was doing all acute care for a long time or something like that. The, the, relationships and the rapport between staff and families and you know other therapists or whatever is completely different so I think flexibility in this setting is so much more crucial than it is as much as we all need flexibility it's up here it's ridiculous (laughs) no I I totally agree with with everything you all said I think that you know like you said it goes into like almost any setting you want to work in like get those experiences, get those observations and get all that because, and I think too, like within that, you know, network with other professionals. So maybe you can't observe right now because of COVID. Can you at least talk to someone? Can you, you know, reach out to them and find out more and what courses do they recommend taking? Like just anything you can do to, to build yourself up because like you said, you have to be patient. Um, and I think that goes with, with any position that you're, you're trying to achieve. So I guess that we kind of answered this, but you know, is it, easy I'm using quotations is it easy to find a job in the NICU no next question (laughs) I'm kidding no No, it's not and I think I will tell you from working in other states and other facilities it's not even just about experience honestly sometimes it's about seniority or where you where you are in the pecking order and I mean as bad as that is that doesn't necessarily mean the best person is for a job Unfortunately, that's just how it works. Sometimes it is about politics. And I mean, I hate that, but that's life, unfortunately. So it's like Victoria said, being patient. I think looking for the right fit for you too is the other thing. I always use the example of it's like trying on a pair of shoes that don't fit. And you have to be aware of that. You know, I've done, I worked in the schools for a year. It wasn't the worst job I've ever had, but it wasn't for me. I have nothing but respect for our school therapy colleagues. Like I'm so glad they're there because they're awesome at their job and it is something that it just did not fit for me but I think knowing what fits for you um and knowing that it's not going to be easy to get your foot in the door period so and we kind of talked about this the other day we were having this conversation and it shouldn't be you don't want to blindly go into the NICU and just because you have you know your degree now and you feel like it's your dream job, it shouldn't be easy because the population that we are working with up here is very fragile. Every single thing we do matters and there is harm that can be done. So I think it's a good thing that it takes some specialized training or a mentor or, you know, just having somebody there to help guide you. We talked about red flags. If 
you are being roped into um, a NICU job with very little experience and nobody that's going to be able to be there to mentor you, yeah. that's a red flag. And that's in any facility. I had a student that was leaving our facility and moving back to like Iowa and they were hiring her as a CS to build a program. And I was like, and I told her, I was like, that is a red flag. You are a CS, you will have no support. I'm like, that is not a good place to be as a therapist because if it, the building starts burning down, like you're the one there to put it out. And that's not something that you should be able to do in that position. So. And I don't think that that anybody wants to be in an uncomfortable situation like no. that, just being fresh out of school and you're ready to shine. And then it could actually dampen like your morale and right. your perspective on the NICU. And so you might, yeah, you might would give up if you weren't in the right supporting system. So yeah, definitely. So, um, Coming off of this now, so what would you say is, and this is kind of going more into just like experiences now. So what would you say is the most difficult part of your job? <laughs> you got to have a backbone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's not a joke. There have been so many times that both of us have gone home in tears, whether it's here or, well, right now we're in a battle with a pediatrician, so it's not even here, you know, it's, you know. <laughs> And, and it happens in, in all facilities and everywhere, but it is definitely something that knowing what you can take and what you can't, you know, and what's worth it and what's not. I think that's the biggest thing, but man, you have to, <laughs> you have to stick to your guns and know what you're willing to go to bat for and what you're not. I think that's that was the biggest thing for me, for me to learn personally, what I was willing to give up and what I wasn't willing to give up. Yeah. I think I mean, it's sometimes tough navigating these relationships in the NICU. We've gotten, now that we've been up in this NICU for four, three or four years, three or four years that part is now an easy aspect of the job. In the beginning though, it was very difficult. It was taking time to understand each nurse individually, each neonatologist individually, and figuring out how we were going to best work together. Now, I feel like it's a little bit more of kind of, I don't want to say standing your ground, but just knowing like your value and what she like she said what's worth kind of going to bat over when it comes to some ethical dilemmas in the NICU yeah, yeah. I think the best example is if we had a patient on the neuro ICU that we put on nectar thick liquid 95 percent of the time there's not somebody else who's going to come back in and put them on thin because that's just not something that's in the pop you know what I mean that's something that they know that they're not but here it's so much grayer the area is not cut and dry like, like it is on, you know, the neuro ICU or the cardiac ICU, you know, it's, it's, it's something that there's, there's much more of a working relationship, I think, between therapy, whether it's physical therapy or speech pathology or the nursing staff or the physicians, there's much more of a working relationship to figure out each patient than I think there is even on other sides of the coin that I've worked on, you know, and I think it's, it, it's a much more interdisciplinary team than it is individual people trying to put the pieces together. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. like, yeah, yeah, definitely. You have to work as a complete unit versus like one yes. person coming in and doing this and one person coming in and doing that because otherwise nothing's going right. to change. Right. Absolutely.
Okay. So if, if someone is interested in being in the NICU, what, um, where should they kind of begin? And I know you guys have a great, you know, your, your resource, your, your map, um, is a great resource for people kind of looking into pediatric dysphagia, but if they're interested, um, let's say NICU specific. I think looking locally to see what they have available, you know, if you're a student, what's in your area or what's in the area that you're going to want to be eventually, you know, I mean, we're a pretty transient field, you know, so it's like, you might, you know, I would hop down to Florida for a year and came back and decided that was maybe not for me, but <laughs> trying to figure out where you're going to be and what the resources. Are. And that's what I looked for. I literally just went on and Googled what, what facilities were in that area that would even be a possibility for me. So I think that's the best place to start is yeah. resources in that area to then go from there and be like, okay, in that area or whatever, who can I reach out to, to, men to mentor or to ask questions to, or who do I know? doesn't have to be speech pathologist either. Who do I know that works in the NICU? Is it a nurse? Is it an OT? Is it a PT? Is it a, you know, a family that was, you know, something like that? What's, what was their experience like looking at um, foundations that are in communities? Like we have something called the Early Bird Foundation here in our community that works with families there, you know, like looking to get involved in a volunteer area just so you can get used to that like dynamic. There's lots of resources out there that are free you know, that's not even CEUs if you don't want to go that route, you know, so. I think a lot of people get stuck on what CEUs can I take? What course can I take? But there's a lot of good books. Yes. <laughs> like we like to read. Yeah. <laughs> don't forget about the, like, you know, the books or, you know, if you're able to go and observe some things, then maybe you go back to the books from your class and even put the, you know, make those mm -hmm. connections again. So don't forget about some like really good books that are out there. And um, just getting some medical experience in general. If you have no medical experience, you're going to be lost up here. Yes. It, I mean, we just speak in acronyms all day and you need to know all these different diagnoses and you need to know, I mean, it is much more than just knowing something about feeding. You need to know yeah, the whole, who your resources are that you exactly. like, you know, the things that I learned about formula or breast milk, or what the dietitian could do for me, or how I could help her, or what we, you know, whatever, how our physical therapist and I work together, and what we can do for each other, and how we could pair up, you know, let's I said, looking outside of just, you know, and I know we had kind of casually talked about this before, back in the dark ages, when I started this, there wasn't tons of information available, and the CEU courses that were available were limited, we'll just, you know, and I think thinking outside speech pathology tends to get very stuck on a handful of things, just as a profession, we tend to get stuck on things. I think looking outside the box that we typically go to, like, okay, well, we know this specific source is always the best. There's lots of people putting out great information. And the one thing that we should know as a profession is how to sort through good information, bad information. That's yeah. part of our job as a professional. And that's part of our job of helping families sort through good information and bad information. So while social media can be a great source, it could also be a nightmare, you know, so kind of helping. And, but it's the same with research. There's good research and there's bad research. There's good books and there's bad books. There's good CEU courses and bad CEU courses, you know, so mm -hmm. looking to see what is out there outside of the, <laughs> the norm that we're used yeah. to, you know, and kind of looking to see what's available. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, kind of going back into your, your role and experiences actually in the NICU. So 
how did how do you and we we touched on this a little bit but a little more in depth of like how did you build a caseload so what programs are in place um how are things you know what what triggers an slp consult that sort of thing so we started with um implementing and getting our entire NICU staff trained with infant driven the infant driven feeding program that was like our buy-in kind of so our NICU bought the training course. the training course and it doesn't have to be infant driven feeding just as a caveat it can be yes. you know the early feeding readiness there's there's a multitude of them that's just what, for, yeah yes that's what worked for us because that was what was in our EMR so it made it easier for our system because yeah. it was already implemented in Epic. And so they were like, okay, well, that's kind of a no-brainer. We don't have to change our EMR. So that made yes. it easier. So that's what we started with. And we created that practice team that had some neonatologists, the director, the education like director of nursing, and then um, a couple of different like nurses that kind of wanted to be our feeding ambassadors, us, our manager. We all sat down and kind of wrote out what this infant driven feeding was going to look like in our NICU and established some automatic consults and some things that we knew from the very beginning speech should be a part of. Like more like um, infant populations that might already be like pre-existing conditions just a baseline that would create them having feeding difficulties. So it was a specific set of orders. Yeah so we went ahead and we all agreed and established that any baby that was 32 weeks gestational age and under, we yes. were going to automatically have an SLP consult for. Um, any baby that was an infant of a diabetic mother. 1,500 grams or below. Any baby that was 1,500 grams or below. Um, any cleft lip and palate. Any neonatal abstinence syndrome baby. Yeah, trisomy 21 for sure, but any, any genetic... Mm -hmm precursors that they were even suspecting were going to be automatic consults. So once we had those in place, well, the orders just from those, those roll in all the time. Um, but then outside of that, we were like, well, if those orders, you know, are in place and we, we have those babies on our caseload, how can we catch anybody that's going to fall into the cracks? And that's where the infant driven feeding program kind of went into place. And we said, well, it, we're going to have the nurses fill out these scales and they're going to contribute to the, you know, assessing their readiness and quality of their feedings. And any baby that had, is consistently scoring poorly with the quality of their feeds, it's going to trigger an automatic SLP console after so many times. And we set up our own algorithm for that. So, yeah, so we, that would be like yeah. what you would agree on for your hospital, but. And we pulled like hospitals, you know, there was like 6,500 facilities or whatever that was using this. So they pulled so many that were similar to our population of patients and kind of used what would work for us. Yeah, so every facility can obviously look different. We just tried to figure out what was gonna work for us. So we have all these automatic consults like in place that they just trigger automatically. However, I would say now we have nurses coming up to us daily saying, if you don't have an order on this baby, like." we need to get you one or a doctor saying, are you seeing this baby? We're going to go ahead and put this in for you. We pretty much now see every single baby besides maybe a couple babies up here. Mm -hmm. And even if we don't like have an order on them, we're at least they're on our radar. We're familiar with them, but we also do um, multidisciplinary rounds twice a week. So any baby there that anybody expresses concern over, or if they just want 
an extra set of hands and eyes and like like we had 18 year old parents who were low education kind of lower cognitive function didn't read you know so they were like can everybody please come in and help with teaching let's figure out how we can teach mm-hmm. this family you yeah know? so even though maybe the baby was doing well it's just you know getting us in there to help just additionally give some education make parents feel confident about it so it really getting your um, presence in the NICU I think consistently being up here has helped just everybody now realizes well everybody could benefit from having speech yeah. and I think the breastfeeding support has really helped us because like I said with our facility specifically obviously all lactation consultants the IBCLC can handle preemies so to speak I think our facilities they just feel more comfortable like kind of because we're up here all the time letting us right you know manage that population a little bit more so that yeah. kind of contributes to a lot of generated consults for us just with breastfeeding support you know so. and we love like we love being in from the beginning because we're not waiting we don't want to wait until babies are doing poorly and you know failing so to say we want to be seeing these kiddos from the beginning to set them up for success so even though maybe a baby isn't having an issue right now it's that's great let's keep it that way let's stay on the same page let's make sure everybody feels empowered and like educated on what we're doing and with this plan of care so it's great to go ahead and have those orders from the very beginning. I don't think that there's a baby that's in the neonatal ICU that couldn't benefit yeah. from having a, a at, least an at least an evaluation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think it also, the one thing that I have seen over the years that's improved is the one thing that it negated was an order for therapy does not mean something is wrong. And I think it, before it was setting up these preconceived notions that it meant something was broken and then it gives these negative, you know, ideas. And so, you know, oftentimes preemies or sick term babies, or, I mean, my own children have both been to speech therapy. So it's like, it's kind of getting rid of that thought that we are here as a support system, not because we need to fix something. Mm-hmm. So much better for prophylactic, you know, mm-hmm. care than, than treatment afterwards. So, yeah. So, <laughs> So um, these final two questions, I'm going to kind of lump into one because I think we'll overlap a little bit. So what would you consider if you're going in for an evaluation for one of these infants? Do you have a, an order to go see um, a new baby in the NICU? What are you kind of thinking about when you're going into that evaluation? And then what would a typical goal look like for a baby in the NICU? I mean, I think just like with any patient, you're looking at, well, for the babies, what's their gestational age? Um, what's their comorbidities? Were they sick baby on the vent? Um, what, yeah, what's their respiratory situation look like? What's their um, hematocrit levels? You know, what's their jaundice level? What's their sugar level? We're obviously looking at lots of labs. What kind of other medications might be affecting this baby? For example, if this mom was on magnesium because of her blood pressure or something like that, this baby might have high mag levels. So that might be affecting this baby's ability to perform. So looking at the baby as a whole, looking at the digging history and physical, the yeah, digging, digging into the, just like we do with anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously with the baby, we're looking at what's the social support system so what's this family dynamic what am I walking into (laughs) is it you know just single mom is it you know um actually here lately we've had um lots of same-sex partner families you know so it's like what does this social situation look like are we breastfeeding are we not are we bottling is this formula is this donor milk um and then where's this baby going home to is it going home to foster care is it going home to family is it you know 
whatever, how long does their stay look like it's going to be? Are they a 38 week sick baby or is this a 30 weeker who's going to be here for a bit, you know, and kind of looking at how we are going to establish. I mean, obviously our first goal is safe and efficient eating. That's what we need. Babies who need, who need to be fully PO fed safely and efficiently. That's our most important goal because babies have, have to eat and gain weight to go home. And like, and then after that, it would be tailored to whatever that baby needs, you know, specifically what are their issues? Um, like what, you know, we would assess what nipple, what positioning, what support system, what, you know, what they're being fed might need to be changed, how they're positioned in isolate might need to be changed, you know, lots, lots of things that we're looking at to put all the pieces together. So, yeah. And then specifically for Taylor to that baby, we're going to be the like experts on reading their cues. So we want to go in and, and see how that baby is communicating their stress to us or maybe telling us that it's something's too fast or something's too slow or, you know, I've just, am shutting down during feeds because I've had a stressful busy day or I'm having a hard time breathing and you know so we're going to go in and help decipher those babies cues and let nurses know about it but then also be there to support and educate families on those cues so that way they can feel confident and independent and and reading their baby's cues and creating that like dialogue so to say between themselves and the baby when they're there to feed. So we always say it, it doesn't matter if we can feed a baby. <laughs> That's great that we can feed a baby successfully and it look amazing. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter because we're not going home with those babies. So when we're evaluating, a lot of times it will be with a family member or the caregiver, whoever it is to be like, okay, you know, let's get you comfortable with doing all of this. Let's teach. Let's do some hand over hand guidance. Let's make you feel comfortable. Let's demonstrate some things because it is not intuitive to feed a preemie. It's not even a term sick baby. Sometimes there's some things that just aren't intuitive, even if you've had kids before. So I think that's a huge part of the evaluation too, is just kind of, you know, really creating that safe place for families to come to you and be like, what do I need to do to help make my baby successful and do developmentally appropriate um, task, I guess. What else? We always do. Um, we always give our nipple recommendation. Mm -hmm. That's my thing, though. Like, we're more than a nipple recommendation, but we always do give what, what we have seen in that moment. However, we understand that babies change. And this is acute care and it's going to be an ongoing assessment of this baby. So we can't just go in for one feeding and think that those recommendations have to, you know, stand forever. This baby's going to change. Their respiratory status might change. They're going to improve. They're going to maybe have a setback for another reason. There's so many things that are going to happen. So we, we give those recommendations. We give all the strategies, you know, the positions. We give all of our recommendations, but also you know, knowing that that's not the Holy grail, <laughs> things are going to change. That's not the end all be all. For it's not sure. the end all be all. Yeah. Mm, and I, think I guess when it comes to goals, I would say we, the way that our um, EMR system just works, it's, it's a pick list. So we already have goals in place, but we'll pick maybe some areas that 
we know that the baby, you know, is struggling. It could be with their organization skills. So being organized for a feed or um, their suck, swallow, breathe coordination. Maybe it's something with their latch. So we have specific goals that would be tailored to that baby. So, you know, we'll um, improve their suck, swallow, breathe coordination with minimal cues or whatever it might be. Um, also, we always include a caregiver goal because again, it doesn't matter if we can identify the stress cues and we can do the strategies. So we have a goal for caregivers. And then we always have a long-term goal that might be like, you know, the infant will demonstrate safe, efficient feeding skills that support and sustain nutrition and growth. Something broad, something, you know, in general, that's what, that's what our goal is. Or they're going to tolerate all their feedings by mouth, or they're going to tolerate at least 80% of their feedings by mouth. Um, yeah, that's kind of, yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you all so much. Is there anything else you want to add? I mean, I feel like we went through like the... <laughs> Listen, all the information possible. I sometimes, so. sometimes I feel like word vomit over here. So you oh, just no. feel free to just chop up. Yeah, chop no, you're that good. Up and you roll with it. You are good. But thank you all so much. Um, I appreciate you being here. And um, I look forward to us being in touch in the future. Thanks for tuning in today. If you have any questions, please feel free to reach out to us on Instagram at the feeding pod. And from there, you can click on the link either for Brie or myself, Olivia. If you enjoyed this podcast, we hope that you'll leave us a review and we look forward to seeing you next time.